Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. This is a fireside chat that is very different from my normal fireside chats. This is not my home. It's not a real fire. And, uh, and I have an audience, not the usual three people, but about 150, I think. Uh, yes. So this is really atypical as those of you who regularly watch. So I want to explain to you what's happening, why you're, why you're seeing this, why you are seeing this, because it will, I've never in all about 80 that I've done, I've actually never talked about PragerU to you. I've talked about life. So this gives me a wonderful opportunity. This is a PragerU, Prager University weekend that we are having called the PragerU Summit. And we've had some uh, terrific speakers whom, uh, who spoke on their own or on occasion I, I would interview them. It's really been just, just truly magnificent. Uh, it's, it's a high for all of us. And we've had about, how many people in total came? 300? So 300 supporters from all over uh, North America uh, have uh, come here and obviously... Without these people, there, there's no fireside chat, there's no PragerU. I mean, this is, we're obviously grateful to them, and they're obviously grateful to us, or they, they wouldn't support us. So this gives me a chance to just briefly tell you what this whole enterprise, PragerU, is about. Uh, a lot of you watch our stuff, our uh, videos, and, of course, the fireside chat. And I'd like to tell you, a little bit about the philosophy of why this thing exists. I have, way before there was a PragerU, I've had, and still have, my national radio show. People have always asked me, and I've been doing this for 35 years, people have always asked me, who listens? And they're always asking that in by way of really asking, are you talking, and they even say this, well, aren't you preaching to the choir? In other words, aren't you talking to people who agree with you? As if that is just not as important as talking to people who don't agree with you. A completely understandable reaction. But I've always, always answered the question, aren't you preaching to the choir by answering as follows. That's okay because the choir forgot the melody. Even if every single person I spoke to agreed with me, it's not the case, but even if it were, it would be worth it. So let me explain why I say that. The choir forgot the melody. I'll give it to you in three different examples, and you'll get my point. Americans have forgotten how to explain America. Christians have forgotten how to explain Christianity, and Jews have forgotten how to explain Judaism. As a result, fewer Americans than ever believe in America, fewer kids of Christian families believe in Christianity, and fewer kids in Jewish families believe in Judaism. That's the net result of not being able to sing the melody. That's what has happened. By the way, a lot of you are across the world, I will just say that this is equally true for Western civilization generally. The West forgot what the West stands for. And if you do not explain 
every generation to the next generation what it is we have to perpetuate, well, by golly, you won't perpetuate it. That's exactly what has happened in a nutshell. Let me give you the American example for a moment. The World War II generation is called in America, many of you outside of the U.S. will not know this, but almost every American knows this. It is very common to refer to the World War II American generation as the greatest generation. I've never accepted that fully because the World War I generation was great, the Civil War generation was great, the founders were great, so I don't believe that. But they were a great generation. But they did something, they made one huge mistake. They didn't teach their kids what America stood for. So they produced, in my generation, I'm the post-World War II generation called baby boomers, they produced the most narcissistic, least caring for America generation in the history of America. There is no parallel for a generation as alienated from the country as my generation. They, in turn, have raised another generation, and they are even more alienated. So that today, the notion of, quote-unquote, nationalism, of celebrating your nation, is now considered the same thing as white supremacy, which is a total evil. So not only do they not celebrate America, they condemn the celebration of America as a form of almost neo-Nazi fascism, white supremacy. That's how bad it is. My parents' generation, though not my parents, but my parents' generation had the following attitude. And I remember as a kid saying this is a big mistake. I remember it because I started lecturing at 21 years of age, oddly enough, and it is odd. And I remember saying, you know what? You, talking to my parents' generation, you decided to give my generation, in your words, everything you didn't have, which generally meant everything material that you didn't have, and peace. So you wanted to undo the Depression and World War II. Peace instead of war, economic prosperity instead of a depression. And guess what? You did give us everything you didn't have. The problem is you didn't give us what you did have. And I remember saying this in my 20s, that they didn't give us a love of the country and an understanding of liberty and all the other values. That's what happened. So my generation had, except for the Vietnam War, which is a serious exception, I acknowledged, but my generation had peace, and my generation had unbelievable material prosperity. But they didn't get any of the values that underlay what America should stand for and does stand for. That's what happened. That is the genesis of the problem. So how, what does that have to do with PragerU, or for that matter, prior to PragerU, my radio work, which continues, I might add, and that is I knew I had to explain to Americans what it is America stands for, to people in the West what the West stands for, to Jews what Judaism stands for. I'm a Jew. I know what Judaism stands for. Most Jews do not. And even though I'm not Christian, I've been explaining to Christians how important Christianity is. Uh, I, I, it's a very odd life I have, and it includes the following statistic. I have probably brought more non-Jews 
to Christianity than perhaps any living pastor. The, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say such a thing if I would be laughed at if, if it didn't have truth. But it, I'm sure it's true. I'm, by the way, I'm very proud of it, and I'm thrilled about it. Because if Christianity dies, that's the, that's the normative religion of America. And if Christianity dies in America, America will die. I mean, that is, that, that is just, it's, it's a given. Look at Europe. It's exactly what's happened in Europe. So that's what PragerU is doing. It's explaining what should have been explained. To the extent that right now, and this is going to lead, lead me into my distinguished guest, it is amazing to me that capitalism has to be defended. The thing that brought more people out of poverty than anything in history, in fact, no, that's not even correct. The only thing that brought billions of people out of poverty in the history of mankind is capitalism. If you love people, you should love capitalism. Only if you love theory more than people will you prefer socialism to capitalism, which is exactly what the left does. It loves theories. That's why academics are on the left. They're in love with theories. They make a living writing theoretical articles for abstract journals. But in real life, it's nonsense. It doesn't work. And the only thing that is good is what works in real life. Capitalism, which is the same as a free society's economy, a free economy in a free society, that's what works. So let me introduce my guest, which again, it's a rare thing on a fireside chat, but it was, it was really a perfect introduction. It worked out well, because if we don't make the case, apparently, I mean, what is it, half of millennials who, who believe that we, uh, we, we should have socialism or they, they believe capitalism is bad. We have members of Congress who talk against, against capitalism, it, it's, why, while they benefit from the most robust economy in the, in the history of the world, the American economy. Mike Levin, or Michael Levin, is a member of the PragerU Advisory Board. He's the CEO and chairman of the board of the Georgia Aquarium. It's one of the most amazing aquariums in the world, by the way. Maybe I'll ask him some things about fish. He doesn't know this, but... Uh, I'll throw in a few about, you know, the jellyfish and what, what's his favorite jellyfish? I, I may ask him that. By the way, for the record, I hate jellyfish. If they all died, it would be a boon to the world. Prior to his current position, Mr. Levin served as president and chief operating officer of the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, one of the, the biggest hotel Corporations in Las Vegas, President and Chief Executive Officer of the U.S. Franchise Systems Incorporated, and President and Chief Operating Officer of Holiday Inn Worldwide. She's one of the most successful businessmen in America. Would you welcome Mike Levin? The man. You're the man. You're the man. So, what's your favorite jellyfish? Gefilte. That guy is fast. That guy is fast. Yeah, you're right. They only last a year, by the way. What? Uh, jellyfish? Yeah. What do you mean I'm right? I'm right that I want them dead. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I, I didn't know. They, they really, they live a year? One year. It's a year too long. Yeah. That's my view. 
By the way, I know this is hilarious. The last poor Mike, the last thing he expected is questions on fish. But you know I'm a character, but you're somewhat of a character, so we uh, we mesh well. So let me ask you, do you have jellyfish at the aquarium? We have jellyfish in the aquarium. We get some from the Pacific Northwest, and we also make our own, actually. We have a, actually create our own jellyfish. I'm, I'm wishing they drop dead and he makes them. <laughs> this is a match made in heaven right here. This, is uh, that true? What do you mean you make them? Seriously? Well, we, we, have, we, we produce our own jellyfish. In, 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 they reproduce? In, that's correct. We don't watch it. No, no. <laughs> it, it, would, it would be on the restricted list on YouTube. Well, of course. No, would, of course. Be, clearly, <laughs> you, you, you can't have jellyfish reproduction videos. Of the thought, don't even send me there. Why, but you are so successful, why did you decide to make an aquarium? Well, I, I was uh, head of the Marcus Foundation, Bernie Marcus's foundation in Atlanta, and uh, he built an aquarium, which I objected to because it was costing about $300 million at the time. Uh, but he wanted to give a gift to the city of Atlanta. And uh, so I participated in the construction of it because I had hotel experience, and basically we put a big ballroom in in the kitchen and all that kind of stuff. And then we built it. And uh, after we built it, it was successful for one year and it started to go downhill. And Bernie said, why don't you go in and consult? So I went in and consult and as soon as I got there, the CEO left. So Bernie said, you're staying there. So I stayed there for a couple of years and I didn't know anything about fish. Uh, I, really, I mean, the only fish I ever had was goldfish and they all died. And so, so I, I, but I went there, I learned a lot, and it's the best cocktail job I've ever had because every time I go to a cocktail party, I say, I'm George O'Krim, and they ask me questions, I say, how long does a dolphin live? I say, oh, 30, 35 years. They don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it sounds great. So, so anyway, then I left for Las Vegas for six years. I was supposed to go for two. And when I came back, Bernie said to me, uh, look, we're having trouble in the aquarium again why don't you come back and work in the aquarium? So I said, well, I don't want to get paid anymore. I'll be a volunteer chairman and CEO. So I went back four years ago. I'm in my fifth year. And uh, it's a great place. And I keep learning a lot, which I think is very important. It's a, it, there are people like you who just, uh, I, I'm not buttering you up or anything. There, there are people who, whatever they touch, it sort of turns into gold. You, you may, I mean, it's not, this is not in your background, an aquarium. I mean, let's be honest. So what prepared you to build a, a multi-hundred million dollar aquarium? Well, and right now it's up to about 600 million, actually. Uh, but uh, what prepares you for it is you really have to understand the business aspects as well as the science aspect, and you have to understand the people. It's, it's sort of like a hospital. You have doctors. We have six veterinarians there. We do a lot of science and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you have to understand the marketing aspects. You understand the gate. You understand the technology. Uh, and I had all of that and other, other experiences. So basically, you just bring to bear a combined science and business attitude towards the aquarium. And now uh, we, we, we have a very positive cash flow. We're probably the most successful, certainly in the Western Hemisphere, the most successful aquarium. Really? Congratulations. Yeah. It, it, it is an amazing place if you haven't been there. It really, it really is. So this is also in addition to having been CEO of Holiday Inn. How many years were you at Holiday Inn? Five. I was there five years. And, 
and and how was the hotel business, which obviously you then pursued again in, in Vegas? Do you enjoy that? Is it very tense? <laughs> it depends who the boss is, actually. Uh. The, uh, in Holiday Inn, I was uh, president chief operating officer for Holiday Inn Worldwide. We had about 3,000 or so hotels around the world, worked in 63 countries, had offices all over. And, uh, but I worked for a British company. I worked for Bass PLC. And I come from Boston originally. And I really, I know a lot about American history, but I never really knew why we threw the tea in Boston Harbor. Uh, working for the Brits, I found out. And uh, so I threw the tea in Boston Harbor again. It lasted five years. I didn't get the job I was supposed to get when the CEO left because they said I was too old, which is a very interesting story. I was 58 at the time. But Bass PLC, uh, everybody will enjoy this story, had a retirement age of 60. So I, I said to my CEO, who I was quite friendly with at the time, I said, well, why am I too old? I mean, uh, well, you have to retire at 60. I said, well, why do you retire at 60? Doesn't make any sense. He said, well, the company was started in 1714, and that was they had a retirement age of 60. <laughs> so a typical British, British right, company. Exactly. You know, so I said, but, but it, nobody lived to yes, be 60. Exactly. And, uh, you know. That's right. <laughs> that's right. It's like the Social Security of the United States. That's what people died at 65. Exactly. Was, exactly. Okay. So are you shocked that capitalism even needs a defense in America? Yes. Yes, I am shocked. I, 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 I think that, that we've done a really lousy job at, at letting people understand from high school onward what the benefits of a free enterprise system is and what the ism is. Uh, the, the problem I have is that nobody seems to understand who are young in particular, what are the benefits of capitalism or the free enterprise, the free market system. I'll tell you an interesting story about that, I mentor a lot of college kids now. They call, you know, people send their kids to me and whatever, and somebody sent to me a senior at Brandeis University in Boston. And he was an economics major. And so I, he came in to see me, we had a nice, a very nice young man. And I said, you're an economics major? He said, yeah. I, he said, I said, well, what are you learning? He said, oh, I learned, you know, this numbers and these things and whatever it is. I said, well, well how do you like Adam Smith? He said, who's he? Who's he? He's a senior economic major and doesn't know who Adam Smith is. So how can you have a situation like that and putting out looking, a guy looking for a job that doesn't know anything about that? And I think, I think we've, we've failed to, we've, we've taken it for granted for so long in the country that as you said when you introduced tonight about what we have to be defensive about now, is that we've just assumed that young people know what's happening, and they really don't. And that's, that's why Prager University is so good. Well, uh, uh, it's meeting a need. It, it, it's, uh, that's clear. So why don't you, in a nutshell, you have a very good way of explaining, hello, capitalists give people what they want. Socialists give people what they want. In other words, they, the socialists. Why don't you explain that? Because that's, that's obviously a, half of America's young people just don't understand that. 
Well, it was a simple situation. When I was in college, I was a, I was a political science major. I took a course in dictatorship and totalitarianism. I took a course that taught me what socialism was or what capitalism was. They don't teach that anymore. And so consequently, consequently, the, the, the idea of socialism where the government owns all the means of production and the idea in capitalism where individuals own all the mean, means of production, it's totally different. And I think, I think they've forgotten to emphasize that. And, you know, Tom Dennis, I, I, I have a problem with, I, I look at things that have to be changed in order to be successful. That's how I run my businesses. That's how I look at it. And, and we haven't done that. And, and you know, I, I fault a lot of the parents of these kids, too. I don't think the parents who really understand, as you said before, of the greatest generation, <clears throat> My father was part of the greatest generation. He fought in World War II in the Battle of Bulge. I had nine relatives in World War II. And, uh, uh, and I, I tell you, if I didn't take that in college, I wouldn't have understood it. He didn't teach me what capitalism was. He was a traveling salesman. Uh, we didn't have any money at all. And, and, uh, uh, but when I got to college, I learned the difference between capitalism, socialism, communism, all the other isms that you can possibly imagine. They taught me that. They don't teach it anymore. Or if they teach it, they don't teach the right one. So I think now it becomes a burden for the parents and the grandparents of these young people as well to take their time and tell them. I talk to my grandkids. I talk to my children. I have three sons. I'm proud to say they're all conservative. All conservative. And I never really emphasized it. Never really emphasized it, but they're all uh, very pro the free enterprise system. So when, when, when the left describes the rich capitalist, you would qualify. Why don't you, and we didn't, by the way, for the record, we did not rehearse one word of this. This is uh, any more than the jellyfish question. <laughs> so why don't, you, why don't you tell people how much you and Bernie Marcus and others, rich capitalists, do charitably. Don't be modest. I want people to understand that if it were not for rich capitalists, how many hospitals would not exist? How many aquariums would not exist? How many autism centers would not exist? Well, I, I know for, I'm a trustee of the Marcus Foundation. Bernie Marcus obviously made a very, has, had significant amount of wealth. He has already in his lifetime given away $2 billion. And uh, uh, we are, as I and, mentioned, and, and give some examples of where yeah. it went. Well, he built the aquarium. That was three hundred million. He uh, he he just uh, did a Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta, seventy-five million dollars for a heart center. He built the Grady Hospital in Atlanta. He built a whole stroke center that was fifty million dollars. I could go on and give you ton, tons of this kind of stuff. He does stuff in Israel. He does stuff for Free Enterprise. Uh, he's a supporter of Prager University. He's a supporter of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and uh, I myself, I'm not in that particular category, but I was very fortunate in my, my term at Las Vegas Sands to make a significant amount of money. I give at least, I've given away at least 15% of my net worth today already, and I continue to give approximately $3 million a year away. So, uh, uh, and I give it, I, I'm an, I, I like entrepreneurial philanthropy, which is why I got involved in Prager University early, because it was starting. I do a lot of startups, uh, and because it's sort of, I can't give uh, $100 million gifts, so I give $100,000 gifts and things like that for, for people who are starting things that 
I really believe in. And, uh, uh, and I think if you look at the United States of America is absolutely the most charitable nation that's ever existed on the face of the earth. And the capitalist system and the free enterprise system, regardless of what your religion is, regardless of what your values are, the money keeps flowing. And it's not just because it's tax deductible, it's because people actually care to help people. And if you take that away, uh, I'd like somebody to take a look at how many charitable dollars the USSR or, the, or the Russia gives away a year. I'd like them to look at Venezuela and see what the charity dollars well, are there. the truth Nothing. is, zero. You, you go to France. Let's take the best examples. France, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, yep. Holland. Americans in the exact same socioeconomic level, income, etc., give far more charity than Europeans. No, there's no question. Absolutely no question. Uh, it, we, we, it, it's not even measurable, the, the amount that comes from in philanthropy uh, today. Uh, look, uh, I'm very friendly with a, a Catholic uh, in, in New York, uh, who is the largest donor of the Catholic charities in the United States. That's Ken Langone, was very responsible for the rebuilding of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, and also does medical in New York, NYU Hospital. Uh, I, I think uh, the people in this room, of course, uh, many of them have donated to you, and many of them donate in many other places as well. I, I, think, I think that's what makes really, th th you talk about America's different and why we're the greatest country in the world, because we're also the greatest charitable country in the world. You take that away with a different political system, a lot of people are gonna hurt, a lot of them. So, of course, they constantly say, oh, well, we don't, you know, you, what is the word fair? Yes, you're not, f the, the, the rich don't pay their fair share. That's the line, yes. <laughs> you have any comments on that? Well, I, I mean, we could comment on that for a long time. I think, I think, uh, I know one thing, I pay my fair share, and uh, I just got my tax bill, actually, last week. And uh, it was a little a surprise, a little higher than I thought. But at the end of the day, I didn't care because uh, I, I'll pay my fair share of taxes. I'm happy to pay my taxes because I'm, it's a privilege for me to be part of the United States of America. And uh, I, there's nothing, uh, nothing I can say that we, we have problems. Like, but I've traveled all over the world. I've worked all over the world. And I can tell you when I talk to people, everybody wants to live here. In spite of everything we have, everybody wants to live here. That's a very important point. It is amazing, for example, how many uh, Africans want to live in America, and indeed, how many people at college know this? More black Africans came to the United States voluntarily than came as slaves. And that was true already in the 1970s. It's been true for 50 years. More blacks came from Africa voluntarily than came as slaves. This has, of course, no defense of slavery, which is simple evil, but it's a statement about they know this is the land of opportunity. And it, why would they move to another socialist place if the place became socialist? <laughs> they could stay where they are if they're in love of so with socialism. Of course, of course. <laughs> it's so it's so it's so absurd when you think about it. Well, how many people have moved to Russia? I can't think. Of how many, many people actually. have moved to Cuba? I mean, they don't go there, right? Because they know there's no opportunity for them.
That's exactly right. So it's another thing that you know you your you your generation uh, were given a love of America, and that too is is uh, is rare is rare today. Well, I think we made I think we made some very very serious errors, and and uh, one of the errors we made was what we did to Memorial Day, making it a three day weekend. When I was a kid, I used to march to the cemetery. Every Memorial Day, I'd march behind the band and go to the cemetery, put flowers on graves. Now you go to a barbecue. I mean, this is what happens. We took Washington's birthday, February 22nd, Abraham Lincoln's birthday, February 12th. I knew it. I was taught it in grammar school and whatever, and it was a holiday. They put it in a three-day weekend. They call it President's Day. Nobody knows what Washington's birthday was. Nobody knows what is. Nobody knows what Abraham Lincoln's birthday is. You say they don't even know who Abraham Lincoln and Washington's birthday is. You go the people who go out and take these interviews of college kids, and they say who's the first president of the United States, and somebody says they say uh, James Polk. You know they don't know that either. So it's, it's a problem. How are you able to transfer these values to your children? I talk to them. That's I right. talk to them. Mm -hmm. uh, at the recent Passover Seder, we had a long discussion. My, I have seven grandchildren, uh, four that are 20, one is 17, one's seven, one's three. I didn't talk much to the seven and three-year-old. Uh, and uh, But we talked about the Passover Seder, and we talked about freedom, and we talked about slavery, and we talked about the values of the American system. We talk about that, and we talk about patriotism. Uh, I registered for the draft. I unfortunately flunked the physical back in 1960. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a screwball story. But uh, uh, at that time, I, I registered every one of my children for the draft. Everyone when they were born. They were born in 66, 68, and 70. Friends of mine were already were not, were not registering their children for the draft. I was registering mine. They knew. They have their registrations. And so... Uh, you make it part of the part of the conversation, and and uh, that's what my wife and I do. So look into the camera now, right over there, where the green light is, is a green and light. give a uh, give your message to hundreds of thousands of young people right now. Well, I think I think my message to anybody who's young would be: take advantage of what this country has to offer but make sure that you have to do something to deserve it and that you should learn about it, you should read about it, you should know history, the American history, and you should know the philosophy of the founding fathers and what the system brings to you and your family uh, because if you travel around, if you study abroad, if you go around and see the other things, what you'll see is there is no better place on this God's earth. That was beautiful. Well, as I said to you earlier, I don't have many guests on the fireside chat, but you are certainly worthy. You're a good man, you're a good American, and you are a credit to the great system that we have here of liberty that has made a person like you from such humble beginnings building hospitals and aquariums today. Dennis, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be here so grateful to be in this country for what this country has done for me and my family and, and to help other people the way I'm able to do it today. It's the greatest privilege anybody can ever have. 
That's what capitalism and freedom can produce. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Levin. See you next week. Thank you for watching. If you'd like to keep these fireside chats free, please do by donating to PragerU.